On the 31st of October, 1820, the Maria Crowther, a 127-tonne brigantine, put in at the port of Naples. After 35 days at sea, and a further 10 languishing in quarantine, everyone on board was more than usually desperate to set foot on dry land. As Captain Thomas Walsh prepared to unload the cargo he transported from England, five figures, two women and three men, could be seen stepping onto the dockside. The eldest of the group, a middle-aged woman by the none more English name of Mrs. Pigeon, promptly vanished into Naples and more or less out of recorded history. Anyone so much as glancing at the remaining quartet might have imagined that they were adventurers newly arrived at the start of a grand tour. All four were young, striking, and three at least would have approximated the elegantly wasted appearance that just then was all the rage across Europe. Perhaps they were following in Lord Byron's cosmopolitan footsteps, seeking refuge on the continent from personal scandal or political storms back home. They might even have seemed a band of romantic artists primed for some extended brooding, and if they really struck it lucky, a bout of Byronic consumption that would make women pity their demise while envying such a pale and interestingly withered condition. The obvious exception to this fantasy was Charles Cottrell. At just 27, he was the oldest and healthiest of the group, a Neapolitan resident who had settled in the city after a successful career as a purser in the Royal Navy. Cottrell would eventually receive the Naval General Service Medal as a crew member of the Thunder, which in October 1813 had captured the French privateer, the Neptune. Cottrell was putting his experience as a naval accountant to good use in his civilian life, setting up in business as a banker with a rather more alluring sideline selling wine. Cottrell had only joined the Maria Crowther in Naples, braving the quarantine and bringing much-needed food and refreshment to passengers and crew. His generosity can be explained by the arrival of his 19-year-old sister, Maria. Maria actually was consumptive and endured a tortuous crossing in damp, cramped conditions in search of a climate that would restore her health. This left the two men. 26-year-old Joseph Seven could lay genuine claims on being a romantic artist. A painter, he had won the prestigious Royal Academy Gold Medal the previous year. Seven also owed his bedraggled appearance to illness, although in his case, this was an extended bout of seasickness that had separated him from his breakfast for most of September and October. As for the final member of the four, the fact that he'd survived the voyage at all was nothing short of a miracle. As Seven would shortly record in a letter, he has lived through it, but it is a wonder. No way could be worse for him. I had determined on returning with him to London from the conviction that he would die on the passage. Like Maria Cottrell, he was dangerously ill with consumption, and to complete Byron's formula for the ideal romantic, he was also a poet. Only contrary to the Lord's flippant joking, there was nothing the least bit interesting, elegant, or romantic about a disease which over the last year had slowly, inexorably, wasted him towards nothing. In case the scene didn't possess pathos enough, the 31st of October was the poet's birthday. He was 25 years old. And as he stood on the dockside, that cold, foggy Neapolitan morning, he had just 115 days to live. Welcome to John Keats' dying year. There is a curious moment in any kind of journey 
which grows curiouser the longer the trip. It is the single footstep that begins at the point of departure, is suspended during the flight, drive, train ride or cruise, and lands when your heel touches the ground upon arrival. The speed, comfort and familiarity of modern travel have helped make this stride feel frictionless to the point of invisibility, even if it bridges thousands of miles and takes hours to accomplish. It is in its way a marvel of the age, and loaded with potential significance, most famously in Neil Armstrong's giant leap from Earth to the Moon. Technically speaking, this began at 6.52am on the 16th of July 1969, hours before the Apollo's takeoff, when the rocket's high-speed elevator whisked Armstrong from the Earth's surface at 600 feet per second. He touched down four days, 18 hours, 44 minutes, and some 20 seconds later, 240,000 miles away, as Neil Armstrong became the first human not to spend his entire life walking on one planet. The step that John Keats performed in the autumn of 1820 was less ambitious in terms of distance, a mere matter of 2,500 nautical miles on water and a further 150 by land, but still took fully eight weeks to complete, long even for the time. This was partly down to a discrepancy in horsepower between a 20th century space rocket and a 19th century wind-powered sailing brig, but it reflects a convoluted sea crossing whose departure was every bit as awkward as its landing. Having set sail from London on the 17th of September, the Maria Crowther was still treading English water 16 days later. The ship's desultory progress was like the punchline of a bad meteorological joke. First, a storm off Brighton forced Captain Walsh to retreat over 50 miles to Dungeness. There, he was reminded that an absence of wind was no better than a surfeit, as the Maria Crowther sat becalmed for 48 hours. Keats' final contact with English soil was probably on the 1st of October, when he and Seven took advantage of Walsh dropping anchor to restock the Maria Crowther and went ashore somewhere near Lulworth Cove. Back on board, so the legend goes, Keats sat down and wrote his final poem, Bright Star. What the step from Lulworth to Naples represented for Keats himself was a desperate and despairing effort to save his life. Seven months earlier, on the 3rd of February, he had coughed blood after returning home late on a frozen winter's night. Keats didn't need an official diagnosis to suspect consumption. According to his friend Charles Brown, he instantly foresaw his death. I know the colour of that blood. It is arterial blood. I cannot be deceived in that colour. That drop of blood is my death warrant. I must die. Under no illusions that another English winter would be his last, Keats eventually submitted to his friend's entreaties to make for warmer climes with adequate medical provision. Rome was eventually settled on as the destination, with Joseph Seven accepting a last-minute appeal to act as his companion. So begins the bleakest, saddest and most forbidding chapter of Keats' biography. The Maria Crowther's laboured passage proved grimly prescient, a prelude to a story of agonising physical degradation drawn out to the limits of human endurance. Seven's letters would regularly declare his conviction that Keats was on the brink of death, only to recant an exhausted, dejected wonder as the torment continued. It is the stuff of a Samuel Beckett play. The plot is stark and visceral, a body being robbed of its most basic function, the ability to breathe. The drama is claustrophobic, essentially a two-hander between Keats and Seven in a single room, unrelieved by much in the way of incident, and with only a minimal supporting cast for variety. Keats' family, friends and loved ones 
are relegated to the status of helpless spectators, waiting off stage for news that when it eventually did arrive, did so weeks after the event. The ultimate tragic irony of the piece is that the only possibility of release, Keats' death, doubles as the supreme moment of heartache. The physical suffering was intensified, almost impossibly, by the most piercing emotional and mental strife. Dying of consumption was Keats' worst childhood nightmare made flesh, a possibility he'd feared since the disease claimed his mother and his uncle a decade earlier, and which was sharpened to a point when he watched at close quarters his younger brother Tom die two years before. Keats' own Hail Mary pursuit of a miracle cure came at the cost of leaving behind everyone and everything he held dear, including the loves of his short life, Fanny Braun and poetry, both of which would be held responsible for his condition in the months and years to come. Little wonder he proclaimed these desolate days his posthumous life. These five months, a kind of anti-grand tour, were a creative wasteland, even more so when compared to all the promise, striving and achievement of the previous five years. And what proves almost as harrowing as his distressed sense of loss are the tantalising glimpses of what might have been, the books he might have written, the woman he might have married, the life he might have led. Over the coming months, the Keats Shelley Memorial Association is commemorating the 200th anniversary of John Keats' death on the 23rd of February, 1821, with readings, conferences, exhibitions, a Google Earth map, and our annual Keats Shelley Writing Prizes. This sad tale about the death of a poet is close to our hearts. It is in many ways the story of the Keats Shelley house itself. That momentous step that began on the 1st of October wasn't just Keats' last on English soil. Four weeks later, it would become the first taken by the Anglo-Italian John Keats. This would culminate, 90 years on, with the foundation of the Keats Shelley Memorial House, a museum dedicated to his life and works at 26 Piazza di Spagna. The Roman Keats certainly has his share of ironies, not the least of which is his utter wretchedness at going in the first place. Only four years earlier, in 1816, he'd written a sonnet, Happy is England, that could daydream of languishing beneath skies Italian and women Italian alike. Yet do I often warmly burn to see beauties of deeper glance, and hear their singing and float with them about the summer waters. Whatever romantic associations the country might once have possessed were decimated by the reasons for his going there. This journey to Italy wakes me at daylight every morning and haunts me horribly, Keats wrote to John Taylor a month before departure. I shall endeavour to go, though it be with the sensation of marching up against a battery. Once he did arrive, Keats' first-hand experience of Italy was brief, painful and restricted to stifling interiors, ships, carriages and eventually his minuscule bed in his minuscule bedroom beside the Spanish steps. He would know Benini's fountain far better by ear than by sight. His encounters with Rome itself would eventually dwindle to staring at the daisy-patterned ceiling above his head. In revisiting and retracing this melancholy coda to the main action of Keats' life, this podcast will explore what Keats' death might mean for us two centuries later, and perhaps how, and possibly why, such intense suffering ought to be commemorated. Might our own experiences during the current context of 2020's coronavirus pandemic help us to empathise more vividly with Keats' experiences, a story of disease, of enforced partings and separation from loved ones, of quarantine, of the desperate hope for a medical response, 
and the strain of living under the continual threat of death? Might we find in the relationship between Keats and Seven a model for that between patient and carer? Theirs was a great but a complicated friendship between very different and occasionally flawed characters, between competing ideas and ideals. Seven's role in particular is an intriguing if ambiguous composite of mixed motives and courageous deeds that raises questions about whether self-interest can be redeemed by self-sacrifice. Whatever the truth, Keats and Seven enjoy near-legendary status in literary history, something that directs us towards the symbolic dimension of Keats' stride from London to Rome. For the death of John Keats the man went a long way to authorising the birth of the mythic John Keats, and even John Keats the great poet. Seven's letters from Rome would play a central part in refining this portrait, but the most obvious and instantaneous response was Shelley's elegy, Adonais. This memorial to an ethereal, passion-winged angel martyr seemed intent on redeeming all the corporeal horror, all the material inequalities of Keats' final weeks in one fell swoop. Unable to save Keats in reality, despite a sincere offer of help, Shelley attempted an act of literary resurrection, one that turns Keats' misery-ridden declaration of his posthumous life on its head. Adonais's allusions to Isabella and the language of the Odes raises Keats' literary remains from the dead and into the present. And while the transformation of the Cockney poet into a lost angel of a ruined paradise was more idealised and probably more autobiographical than anything else, Adonais sparked sympathetic interest in who Keats was, as well as what he wrote. Even Byron wasn't immune, acknowledging Keats' claims to promise greatness and, on his own compassion, even if he couldn't quite remove his tongue from his lordly cheek. Again, it is hard to miss the plangent, as Keats himself might have put it, wary romantic ironies of this artistic salvage and salvation operation. Back in 1821, all the public acknowledgement in the world arrived too late to make any material difference to Keats himself. The legacy today is he has probably inspired more major biographies than all the other romantics put together. The association of Keats' death with his artistic genius and the popular imagination quickly deepened over time. For example, in two later poems by two great Victorian writers, Oscar Wilde and Christina Rossetti, both write sonnets about Keats' grave in the Cimitero a Catolico, yet neither finds anything remotely final in this slumber place of long overdue rest. Instead, it is a garden in a garden, made newly fertile by the more receptive attitudes of subsequent generations. The vices that had so disturbed Keats' detractors the luxurious sensuality of his language, his sensitivity and perceived effeminate oversensitivity, his uncertain peripheral status in English society, were the very virtues attracting new readers, that as well as Wilde and Rossetti included Robert Browning, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Alfred Tennyson, Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and a little later, Emily Dickinson. In this, Adonais was perhaps the perfect foundation on which Keats' later greatness could be built, as well as exalting his talent and quick dreams, the elegy conferred a little of Shelley's radical chic onto his doomed peer. Keats may have emerged as a somewhat over-delicate victim, a pale flower by some sad maiden cherished, but instead of damning him to obscurity, 
Shelley's Requiem for Death by Establishment Abuse recast Keats as a poet's poet, ahead of his own retrograde and conservative times. His youth, which had also inspired such derision during his lifetime, suddenly speaks to his advantage, all the more so when Adonais's young spirit is compared to the reactionary old age of the still-breathing Robert Southey and William Wordsworth. At the same time, Shelley wasn't so outré that he couldn't call on Byron, the most read poet of the day, to pay attention, and include Keats in Don Juan, probably the most read poem of its day. Byron no doubt intended that killed by a critique jibe as a backhanded compliment, or possibly a front-handed insult, but as Tom Stoppard noted in Arcadia about the dubious honour of being mentioned in English bards and Scotch reviewers, would you rather be thought not worth insulting? Keats' growing reputation as an outsider hero found expression in the geographical remoteness of his death, which even lent him the sheen of an exiled genius, and added attraction, perhaps, for later semi-exiled geniuses in England, like the Irishman Wilde dissecting its straight mainstream manners from the demi-monde, or the Anglo-Italian Rossetti, whose own father Gabrielli would flee political persecution from the Bay of Naples only seven months after Keats' arrival. A further 150 years of research have added all sorts of fresh dimensions to this essentially tragic portrait. Scholars at different moments have emphasised Keats' physical vitality, his political engagement, his philosophical acuity, his medical training, his sense of humour, his gift for friendship, his love of life. While these corrected the excesses of his 19th century renaissance, the heart-rending story of his final months has proved vividly, and some might say stubbornly, persistent. This can be seen in one final aspect that unites all three of our poetic tributes, that of pilgrimage, real in the case of Wilde, imagined for Rossetti and Shelley, who wrote in Adonais, or go to Rome, which is the sepulchre, oh, not of him, but of our joy. From the moment the Keats Shelley house first opened its doors over a century ago, it has welcomed poetic pilgrims from around the world, who pay homage to Keats by retracing the step that took off from England on the 1st of October 1820 and landed in Italy. 30 days later. Some of these pilgrims find the house inadvertently, like Leonard Rosenberg, a young American soldier who was the museum's first visitor after Rome's liberation on the 4th of June 1944. Rosenberg was one of two soldiers specifically ordered to guard the museum because of its associations with an English poet, and with good reason it turns out. Earlier that day, as Vera Cacciatore, the museum's curator, watched the German army's retreat, machine gun fire peppered the building from a military truck, shattering the windows of the house next door. When the truck was gone, I looked out again, Cacciatore remembered, and saw two civilians, one dead, the other wounded. As crowds filled the Spanish steps and even Benigni's old boat, Leonard Rosenberg had asked if he could stand for a moment in the house where Keats died. I told him there was no electricity, Cacciatore replied, but that I would take him there with a candle. Having handed his gun to his comrade, Rosenberg walked up the stairs, made his way through the apartment, and entered Keats' bedroom. Cacciatore again. He stood there for quite a while, and in the dim light I saw that tears were coming out from under his thick eyeglasses. 
Before returning to his post, Rosenberg told the curator of his pride at guarding the museum. This is the first time since I went into the army that I've been ordered to surrender to poetry. This reaction has been repeated countless times by visitors who combine a visit to Keats' bedroom with another to his grave four kilometres away. There we can join Shelley, Oscar Wilde and Christina Rossetti in paying respects to all that was mortal of a young English poet. And beside him, the grave of Joseph Seven, who spent far longer in Rome than his old friend. And while it is true that Keats didn't write a poem in Italy, he did perhaps compose a final line of poetry. And thanks to these pilgrims, it is probably read more often than anything else Keats ever wrote. Here lies one whose name was writ in water. None of this would have been possible, or at least happened in the way that it did, without his death in Rome. Shelley and Byron, Wilde and Rossetti, Leonard Rosenberg weeping beside Vera Cacciatore, who risked her life in preserving the museum's most valuable objects. All of which, I hope, makes the 200th anniversary an opportune moment to review Keats' single momentous step from England to Italy, from life towards death, from obscurity towards eventual fame. Next time, we'll begin at the beginning with Keats' family. Welcome to John Keats' dying year. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the Keats Shelley House in Rome and the Keats Shelley Memorial Association. You can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, our history, collections, and our Keats Shelley 200 bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. If you'd like to support us by becoming a friend or making a donation, please visit keatsshelley.org and click support us. John Keats' Dying Year was written and presented by James Kidd. The music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Sabrisky. Visit chrissabrisky.com.